0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going today in this audio to cover the entire chapter, the entire book of 2 John, because it's only one chapter long, 13 verses. I'll give some brief introduction to this book as we start with chapter 1, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, I love all of you in the truth, and not only I, but also all who have come to know the truth. Now, who is this elder, the elder, capitalized in the English? Well, here's some options. It could be, well, there's not really options. It's really the only person it could be is is John, the guy who wrote this book. Why is he called elder? Well, it could be because of his age. He was almost 100 said Gil, but I think it's pretty dicey to say that. Carson and Moo, the famous New Covenant theologian types, which has nothing to do with the dating of the Gospel of John, but they're famous guys. Douglas Moo and Dr. Carson say that First John's date depends on the date of the Gospel of John. Now, the problem with that is the Gospel of John, is the date thereof, is controverted. Many people date the Gospel before 8070, or some do nowadays. For example, Ken Gentry's before Jerusalem fell. Any Orthodox predators will date the Gospel of John before 8070. In fact, in the 1800s, almost everybody did, but now lately people have jumped to the late-date theory. I think the late date theory falls flat on its face. If you if you ever read if you have ever read Ken Gentry's before Jerusalem fell, you will see that he has a pretty ironclad case in my humble opinion. Well, because of that late dating of the Gospel of John and the dependence of first John on the Gospel of John, the majority of scholars today date first John in the nineties AD, and I don't know whether that's true or not. I, I believe that the Gospel was written in right before eighty seventy, but I can go along with the late date for first John doesn't bother me any the NIV Study Bible says it's between 85 and 95, and it is uncertain. Speaking of tying the date of the of the letter of First John with the Gospel of John, it's uncertain whether First, Second, and Third John were written before or after the Gospel. Carson and Moo says that the, the letters were written after the gospel because anti-Gnosticism is a theme in the epistles, an obvious theme, but it's not a theme in the gospel. Gnosticism became large in the 2nd century, so as we get near the 2nd century, we got more chance of having some proto-Gnosticism around. Well, maybe so. So Carson and Moo date the epistles in the early 90s. Well, this, i just point out to you, this is conjecture on top of conjecture on top of conjecture. Nobody knows when the book was written. And I really don't care because it doesn't, doesn't make any difference to me. Now, he was called an elder either because he was old or because he was an elder in the Church at Ephesus, as John Gill and the NIV Study Bible select. NIV Study Bible point, points out that this would be in his later years after he would served as, as an apostle. Of course, John was an apostle for a long time. He ended up being exiled on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea right off the coast of Western Asia Minor. And then, when he got let loose sometime during the Jewish war between sixty six and seventy, he was probably of a mind not to travel anymore, so he settled down in Ephesus, at least that's what people think he did peter Peter was similar; he was an apostle at first, but then he settled down to be an elder as in first Peter five one, therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the suffrage of the Messiah. So an apostle can be an elder, they can settle down at a church. But if they're traveling, they're an apostle. If they settle down and help and govern a local church, then they are an elder. So we're gonna, I'm going to assume here that this is John, the elder of the church of Ephesus, to the elect lady and her children. Well, first of all, where was then before I get to that, where would John be writing from? He's probably writing from Ephesus, as Carson and Moo say, and I think that's what most people say. He's writing from Ephesus, Ephesus. Carson and Moose there's consistent historical evidence that John moved there at the time of the Jewish War between 66 and 70 A.D., although that evidence is, quote-unquote, not overwhelming. So there's some evidence that he was writing from Ephesus. Now, a little bit about the content of the Gospel. John Gill says, quote, This epistle is more remarkable for the spirit of Christian love which it breathes than for anything else. It contains scarcely anything that is not found in the preceding. And out of the 13 verses, there are at least eight which are found, either in so many words or in sentiment, precisely the same with those of the first epistle, First John. And of course, First John was all about love, 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 love your brother. This is the commandment of Jesus. So this is the gospel of love. Now, I've entitled, I didn't tell you what I'm going to entitle this section. I've entitled it Truth and Deception. I think I got that from the Holman Christian Study Bible, I think. Because John not only is concerned with love, he's concerned with discerning the truth and distinguishing it from deception because he's dealing with these false, docetic, proto-gnostic type heretics who are trying to screw his his churches up. So anyway, he's probably writing from Ephesus to churches somewhere in the Ephesus area, the the area of of Ephesus. Jameson, that's Carson and Moo's opinion and Gill's opinion. Jameson, Foster, and Brown say it might be to people in Babylon. No, I don't think so. I think it's around Ephesus. Now we have this very strange phrase, to the elect lady and her children. And I've always been fascinated by this because it sounds so weird. Why would you write something to an elect lady? Well, let's look at the options. It could have been a particular person, as Gill and Clark suggest. Could have been some rich, gracious woman of John's acquaintance. Thus the elegant term lady, my lady, my elect lady. That's one option as a particular person. Or it could have been a particular person with a proper name. Elect could be electa, and lady or lady could be, which is Kyria, could be Martha. So elect in the Greek could be a, a name, and Kyria, lady in the Greek, could be Martha. Here's an p- opinion from Gill. Some think that the word Kyria, rendered lady, was the name of the person, as dominant with the Romans and answers to the Hebrew word Martha. For as the Hebrew word mar signifies Lord, so Martha, Hebrew word for Martha, lady, and then the inscription runs to the choice or excellent Martha. Well, that's a little bit technical. So here are your basic options here. John could be writing, if it's an individual person, he could be writing to Electa Martha. Her name has got two names, you know, Electa Martha. Like my name could be Dan Lewis, Electa Martha. Option number one, or it could be number two, Electa the lady. Or it could be three, Martha the elect. Well, all that's very interesting. It doesn't really matter. Now, Carson and Moo say that, no, the elect lady is a church to the elect lady. Elect means chosen. The church is chosen, of course, because they are written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then he mentions the elect lady and her sister. The sister would be, therefore, would be what well, it says in her children here. In a later verse, it says her sister, greetings to your sister. So that sister would be another church, a sister church. Now, Carson and Moo say that this is an unusual address to the elect lady, and perhaps this was because it was a flexible way to send letters to several individual congregations. There's no Pacific greetings. There's no formal thanksgiving, as you'd normally see in these letters. And so Peter just says, okay, to the elect lady, to the elect church there, then to her sister, to her children would be the people in the church, and to her sister would be another sister church. Well folks maybe I ought to take a position on this. I really don't think it's a hill to die on, as they say, but uh it seems to me that if you're gonna call somebody an elect lady, you'd call her that would be a person. To the elect lady, I don't I just can't imagine calling a church a lady. It just doesn't sound right to me. But it's perfectly ambiguous, it can go either way. We go now to Second John chapter one verses two through three. Because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. That's the middle of a sentence. What's because of the truth? Well let's go back to verse one here. And, Paul, and John says, I love all of you in the truth, dot, 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 because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. That's why I love you, because the truth is in me. Well, the truth could be one of two things. It could be the truth of the gospel, an abstract concept of truth, or it could be a personal truth, Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So because of the Jesus that remains in us and will be with us forever, that's why I love you guys. I, th- I like it personal It's Jesus. Verse three: Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That's your standard greeting. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Mercy is pardon because you you've transgressed a law of God. And peace means you are His friend now, and you are no longer God's enemy. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. There's trinitarian verse no difference between jesus christ and god the father as far as his essence his divinity the son of the father now the gnostics denied that jesus was the son of the father that he had equal divine status as god the father because they said he was a mere ghost he was not really truly the son of god so john emphasizes it: oh yes he was he was the son of the father and so he's saying grace mercy and peace be with us in truth and in love those are the two biggest themes in First John, the previous letter that John wrote. All those tests to discern the truth, whether the false teachers or whether any teacher was in the truth or not. Did he pass the moral test? Was he sleeping with his secretary? Did he pass the doctrinal test? Did he believe there were four persons of the Trinity? Did he pass the love your brother, the social test? Does he love his brother? Does he pass the subjective Holy Spirit in you test? Does the Holy Spirit testify of the truth? That's what John was concerned about. First John was truth, and of course, love. He was famous for love, the old story. I think it was Polycarp that said this: that John got old, and they would carry him to the churches around Ephesus, and they'd set him down, and the first thing old John would say, of course, all he's an old apostle, he had been with the Lord, so everybody wanted to hear John, so what does he say? Brothers, this is the commandment that Jesus said. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And he just repeated that over and over again. And finally, people started getting irritated and said, John, you're talking about this too much. Why do you talk about this all the time? We're tired of hearing it. And John said, that's because what Jesus said. And once you do that, everything else takes care of itself. He really emphasized love. So truth and love, those are the two things he was interested in in 1 John. And he mentions them again here in 2 John we go down to verse 4, 2 John 1. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth in keeping with a command we have received from the Father. Now, he says, I was very glad. He's positive here. It's a, natural, it's a natural thing to see Christians. walk. It's a naturally happy thing. It's ha- naturally happy to be glad when you see Christians walking in the truth. I just heard a story of a Christian woman yesterday who's wrecked her marriage, hadn't talked to her husband in about 15 years, and Had three dedicated Christians that she made to go to church every three times a week out of legalism. And she's into the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, call it and haul it, scream it and redeeming, scream it and redeem it, crowd. Copeland Haganites, nonsense, heresy, Christian, Christian science. I hope I'm not being too negative. Well, she's ruined her family. And that depressed me. Honestly, I hate to see people ruined by false teaching. Well, John could have emphasized that he had seen some of the elect lady's children not walking in the truth, and he could say, I'm very sad about that, but he chose to be positive. He said, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, in keeping with the command we have received from the Father. Now, what command is that? We later on will see that in verse 5. That's the command that you love one another. First John three twenty-three. he said the same thing. Now, this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. We're gonna say we're gonna see in the very next verse, second John 1, verse 5, that he's gonna explicitly say that this command is that we love one another. We'll get to that in a minute. Now we need to go back and again look and see who these children are. I'm glad to find some of your children. Well, if the elect lady is a church, it'd be I'm glad to find some of your church members walking in the truth. If the elect lady is a woman, well then. She, as Adam Clark says, that her children could be some spiritual children she has that she's mentoring, she's discipling, she's looking after. Or it could be her physical blood children, too, her literal children. So it's deliciously ambiguous. Again, I I tend to think it's a woman that John is writing to. It just sounds, you know, just calling a church a lady, that just bothers me. So I'm going to assume it's a, a real woman. And John is glad to find some of her children, either physical or blood children, they're walking in the truth keeping with the command we receive from the Father. So apparently John actually knew these children of the lady, whether it's a church lady or whether it's a, a person lady. They were in Ephesus there probably, and he knew them. All right, let's go to first, Second John Chapter 1, verse 5. So I now I urge you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So there's the command. It's made explicit. The command that John in verse 4 says, that the elect lady's children are walking in truth in keeping with a command? Well, what command? That you love one another? Dear lady, does that sound like a church to you? Adam Clark says this mode of address sounds like a woman being addressed, not a church. But now Douglas Moo and D.A. Carson say that the woman is a church. Jameson, Vossett, and Brown agrees with that view. Here's what they say. "Quote This verse seems to me to decide that a church, not an individual lady, is meant. For a man to urge a woman, because John says urge you, he didn't say you and your children, but just you, for a man to urge a woman alone, that he and she should love one another, John and the woman, ooh, we love one another, ooh, it's hardly like an apostolic precept, however pure may be the love enjoined. In other words, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that an apostle wouldn't talk to a lady with children saying, we need to love one another, baby. But if it's a church, well, then there's no problem. Well, there's two things that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out here. One is the impropriety of an apostle talking that way to a, to a married woman. And two, he says, I urge your dear lady, but doesn't mention the children of the dear lady. But if he's talking about a church, it, the, the members of the church would be understood. You wouldn't have to repeat children. So those two arguments Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say shows that the lady is a church. Well, first of all, let's take the second objection first. Why would John mention dear lady without the children of the dear lady if if it was a person? Well, it would simply be understood that the woman would be in charge of her children and that she passes the commandments down to her children, spiritual or literal. That's not a problem. And as for the other problem, that John somehow is being improper by being so intimate with a married woman, hey. This is an old spiritual apostle of Jesus. He ain't some lecher. He's not Bill Clinton. For crying out loud, he's not Jeffrey Epstein. So I still think it's a woman. So I now urge you, dear lady, and and not as if I were writing to you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. Are this command to love one another was from the beginning? Does that mean from eternity? John Gill suggests that, because love is founded upon the unalterable nature and eternal will of God. I don't think so. Is the commandment we had from Adam because love was written on Adam's heart in a state of innocence? I don't think so. I mean, that's true, but I don't think that's what John's talking about here. From the time of the Mosaic Law, because the love for God, man, is the sum and substance of the Mosaic Law? I don't think so. From the beginning of the church? Now, that might be what it is. Jesus and the apostles taught love from the beginning as soon as they established the church. Or it could be from the beginning of their Christian experience because they might have gotten... Of course, they got born again after the church was established, when they became believers. That's the NIV Study Bible's view. It's one of those last two things, either the beginning of the church, in my opinion, the beginning of the church or the beginning of their Christian life. At any rate, you've had it for a long time. You've had it from the beginning. Now, think about the churches that you've been in. How often, when you first got saved, was love emphasized? I got dedicated to the Lord during the Jesus movement back in the late sixties, early 70s, late 60s, and I remember... There was a lot of talk about love, I guess, because all the hippies were talking about love, but all their love, like the summer of love, but all their love ended up in recriminations and hatred and drug-induced fogs. But it was neat. I I always remember that. I loved how the emphasis was on we need to love one another, because there wasn't a lot that people don't love one another. It's the mark of the Christian. It makes us stand out. No wonder John talked about it so much. Second John 1.6, and this is love that we walk according to his commands. This is the command as you have heard it from the beginning. You must walk in love from the beginning of your salvation experience or from the beginning that the church was established, whatever he means. You've heard about it. Walk according to love. Now, walk, of course, means to live. And notice it's walk it out. It means love is action and doing. It's not mere affections, emotions, or intentions. It's doing something for somebody. 1 John 5.3, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. It's doing something, keeping his commands. Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Here it's doing something or refraining from doing something. Don't hurt your neighbor. It's doing something. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. I just got off the phone early this morning with somebody in New Zealand young Christian woman is trying to find her Christian husband. And I tell her, as I tell all these young Chinese women, Hey, you want, you think you love this guy? Uh, what are you going to do for him? Because, I, let's face it, why do you want to get married? Why do you want a boyfriend? Why do you want a fiancé? Why do you want a husband? It's what he can do for you. Well, my friends, ask not what he can do for you, dear ladies, but ask what you can do for him. That's love. And, of course, I have yet to have one of these single Christians tell me that they are looking for somebody they can help, that they can serve. See, that's the secret of the kingdom. Our ethics are upside down from the world's. You find somebody you can pour your life in, support their kids, make money for them, keep them well, wash them in the water of the word. If you're if you're a man doing that for your wife, that's what love is. Women like that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, they like the chocolate. Some of them do. Like the chocolates. Like the roses. But i tell you what they like more than that. They like for you to take care of their kids, to give them safety and security, to protect them, to not say bad things to them, but to say good things to them. Do things. This is love that we walk. This is love that we walk. According to his commands, and of course one of the major commands he's talking about is loving your brother. Second John 1, seven. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, this is the deceiver in the Antichrist. All right, this is the other one of John's big themes, not only loving the brothers, but also being able to t- discern truth from error, error. Many deceivers have gone out. Of course, the early church had terrible problems with heresy, as we know. John mentions this in 1 John 4.1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And Jesus predicted this actually, Matthew twenty four eleven, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Paul predicted it first Timothy four one. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that means in the later times at the end of the Jewish nation, I don't believe it means at the end of the world, in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Whoa. Connecting false teachings up with demons? So these false teachers do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why does he mention flesh? Because the heretics in John's day indulged in docetism. The Gnostic and docetist, they all kind of ran together. They didn't believe that Jesus had a true body. And, of course, John fought that, as we see in this famous first verse of 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we, we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life— well, folks, you can't hear, see, or touch a ghost. And that's what John's saying. We heard Jesus. We saw Jesus. We touched Jesus's flesh. He was not a ghost. He was a true human being. Now, today's heresies deny more Jesus's divinity rather than his humanity, but that wasn't the case back then in John's time. Now, there's an, another way. I've, I've just simplified docetism in saying it's people thinking that Jesus is a ghost, but there's other ways that docet, docetism can come in, if you reading enough heresies you can see this that the son of god did not become flesh but the son of god temporarily came upon jesus in other words a a human jesus was born he wasn't a ghost he was a human jesus and then the divine son of god came down upon this human jesus and made him god and man at the same time and then this son of god left jesus when jesus died on the cross so somewhere between his baptism and resurrection the son of god came upon the human Jesus. This is the NIV study Bible points that out. But that's different than the idea that Jesus was a mere ghost. Doesn't matter. Either one of those views. It's nonsense, heretical, and fails the doctrinal test. Now, all these people out there teaching this garbage, notice that John calls them deceivers and antichrist. The antichrist. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Notice the verb there. Is. This is the deceiver. What tense is is? That's the present tense. There is no future the Antichrist anywhere in Scripture. I'm sorry to tell you that if you've been reading Tim Lohay, and God help you if you have, and I'm sorry if you have read Hal Lindsey's late great Planet Earth. God will forgive you if you have, but I'm telling you folks, there is no the capital A Antichrist coming in at the end of the during the seven-year tribulation to be wiped out by Christ at the end of the world. It's not in there. It is moonshine. It is Christian science fiction. Second John one eight. Watch yourselves so you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. John tells his readers to watch out, to look out for the deceivers. Don't let them insinuate themselves in your love feast and in your church meetings. This is again following through with what Jesus said in the Olivet discourse, Matthew twenty four four through five. Then Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. But watch out that no one deceives you. So keep your eyes open. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and hunt heresy. That's the last thing people need is a saliva-dripping, hunt heresy type of person. I mean, like Dave Hunt writing a book, heresy, heresy. Then he names good Calvinists as heretics or something to that effect. I don't know if he did that, actually. He called them heretics, but he He came after them, and he comes after all kinds of Doctrinal deviations, and most of the time what he denounces is bad, and so he's doing a good thing. But you've got to be careful to go out and denouncing everybody as a heretic. So if you look at these, what do you call them, discernment ministries? Now, I've sort of drawn to that because I like to distinguish truth and error. I like theology, and I don't like bad theology. But you read these websites, and they, they, they just, you think, I would not like to eat dinner with this person. They're so obnoxious. So you don't need to go out looking for error that's not there. There's plenty of error out there. Watch and see if it's insinuating itself into your church. And also, I would also point out, too, there's always going to be error everywhere, but the only error that you need to worry about is in your church, or if it's in your family, maybe. You can't deal with all the error that's in the world. Watch yourselves so that you don't lose what we have worked for. We, Adam Clark says that refers to the apostles. I think I think he's right. Could be John and the elect lady have been working together for something, but I don't know what that would be. So it's probably the apostles. Watch yourself so you don't lose what we have worked for. Well, now here's a great quote from Adam Gill to show what the apostles have worked for. Quote, in embracing the gospel, making a profession of it, walking in it, showing a zeal, and contending for it, expressing a love both by words and actions to the ministers of it, and suffering much reproach on the account of it. That more or less summarizes it. Just basically church work. You've worked for all this, all this, you've established a church, and now you're going to throw it away by letting the heretics in. Don't do that so that you may receive a full reward. In other words, so that your church will be in great shape. And then Jesus will reward you for that. Now, the reward could either be on earth or it could be in heaven. and Clark suggests the reward is in heaven. It does sound like that. When you see a reward in heaven, you may receive a full reward. It doesn't really say. But if the church is in good shape, then all the church members die and go to heaven. They're going to get a full reward. They say, And Jesus is going to say, hey, you did a great job with your church. Adam Clark says here, quote, that we apostles who have been the means of your conversion may not be deprived of you as our crown of rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's so the apostles get a full reward. John right here says, but that you may receive a full reward. Well, this minor discrepancy is answered by knowing that Clark was using the KGV, which says this, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. All right, well, either it's the church or it's the apostles and the church. You get a full reward if you don't let your church get eaten up by heresy. Now, if it's true that these rewards come in heaven, as the NIV Study Bible says, then that means that this this verse is proof that we receive rewards in heaven for our work. And I don't doubt that. Now, this idea of rewards in heaven, let me briefly do an excursus here on this because it's always bothered me, you know. It sounds like you're working for something, you know. Sounds like works righteousness. And then I think about what happens if you don't do much for the Lord when you could have done more and then all of a sudden you get to heaven and you're so sorry because everybody else has got more rewards than you got. Well, I read something somewhere that said that you're not going to be unhappy about that. You're going to feel justice. There will be perfect justice and you'll know that you get rewarded for exactly what you did. And you will not be envious because there will not be jealousy in heaven. You will not be envious of Paul the apostle when he's sitting up there way above you. That was very pleasing when I read that. I really believe that's true. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says about rewards. There are degrees of heavenly reward proportioned to the degrees of capability of receiving heavenly blessedness. Each vessel of glory hanging on Jesus shall be fully happy. But the larger the vessel, the greater will be its capacity for receiving heavenly bliss. He who with one pound made ten received authority over ten cities. He who made five pounds received five cities each according to his capacity of rule and in proportion to his faithfulness. So in other words, some of us will be blessed more than others because some of us had more capability to do more work in the kingdom. We've got to remember that too. So you're going to be happy. You're going to be rewarded for what you do. Here's some scriptures about reward Mark 9:41. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you he will never lose his reward. Mark 10:29 through 30 I assure you Jesus said there's no one who has left house brothers or sisters mother or father children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses brothers sisters mothers children fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come there's some rewards eternal life in the age to come that's a pretty good reward Luke 19:16 through 19 the first came forward, this is a parable the first came forward and said master you're minor has earned ten more miners, well done, good slave, He told him, because you have been faithful in a very small manner, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your minor has made five miners miners, so he said to him, You will be over five towns. There is the idea of receiving reward in heaven hebrews eleven twenty six where he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward, and that of course would be Moses. He was focused on the reward. We know Abraham was focused on that city which is without foundations. Excuse me, the city which has true foundations and not the city that's on this earth. Well, likewise, Moses, was. he wasn't focused on this world. His f- attention was on the reward. We need to keep our minds focused on the heavenly reward. It's hard to do as we stumble through this veil of tears. Second John 1 verse 9. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one, has both the Father and the Son. Now, what is Christ's teaching? Well, there's an ambiguity here. It could be the teaching teaching given by Christ. and i NIV Study Bible denies that option. Or it could be the teaching about Christ. Anyone who does not remain in the teaching that Christ gave, option one. Or anyone who does not remain in the teaching about Christ, Christ's teaching. Well, the NIV Study Bible says that it's the teaching about Christ, and they say that's because this letter is similar to 1 John, which is talking about doctrinal deviancy, which would be the teaching about Christ. nature of the heresy fault in the immediate context is all about stopping false teachers. Well, that's a minor point. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it, that would refer to the Gnostics, who add all their stuff their angelic hierarchies, the names of their angels, their esoterica, their phony baloney philosophy. That's going beyond the gospel. We don't need to do that. We shouldn't do that. This person that does that doesn't know God. The one who remains in that teaching, this, of course, is the doctrinal test, the famous doctrinal test of 1 John. This one has both the Father and the Son. We go now to verses 10 and 11 of Second John. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching about Christ... Do not receive him into your home and don't say, welcome to him, for the one who says, welcome to him shares in his evil works. Now, the teaching about Christ, of course, is just basic orthodoxy. And John Gill's got a great quotation here. Calvinists are always good at summarizing basic doctrine. So let me give you this quote. The doctrine, this is the quote about what the teaching, Christ's teaching was, quote, the doctrine of the teaching about Christ. Quote, the doctrine which is concerning his person is the Son of God and is truly God, and the union of the two natures, divine and human, in his one person, and concerning his office as the mediator, surety, and messenger of the covenant, and as the prophet, priest, and king of his church, and concerning his incarnation, obedience, sufferings, death, resurrection from the dead, ascension to heaven, session at God's right hand, intercession for his people, and second, coming to judgment, concerning peace and pardon by his blood, atonement by his sacrifice, justification by his righteousness, and complete salvation by him. Now that's a mouthful, folks, but that's the basic gospel in six lines. Excuse me, seven. Seven lines, you got the whole gospel. At any rate, any teacher comes and doesn't bring that teaching, what I just told you, don't receive him into your home, and don't say welcome to him. For the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. Well, what's home? Two options here. It could be your church because the church is made in homes then. In other words, don't allow a false teacher to teach at your church. Or it could be your private home. Then I've NIV Study Bible takes that view. Christians would often take traveling teachers in and the Gnostics would travel, ask for hospitality, then start spreading their poison. False teachers always love to insinuate themselves into believers' home. Let me come around here and be your buddy. Well, was it churches? Was it homes? Was it? Uh, was John warning against allowing false teachers into homes during a church meeting? or Was he talking about allowing, not allowing false teachers to come in because of into a private home when there's not a church meeting going home, but just the private activities of a family? I don't know. Could be both. But now the question arises, well, what happens if you got somebody that you know is teaching false doctrines like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses? They want to come into your home to talk. Now, I remember one time, this is so embarrassing, I was at a friend's house, Was it It wasn't even my house, and two Mormons with their little white shirts and their black ties came to the door and they wanted to talk. Well, as soon as I saw my New other Mormons, and I had just read this verse, and I said, no, the Bible says I'm not supposed to even welcome you into my home. Please buzz off. And I was rude, now, let's face it. I, you know, ooh, I was rude. Well, if that home that is meant here in 1 John was home meeting for a church meeting i ran those mormons off erroneously i shouldn't have used this scripture because they were not coming to a church meeting i would never let them speak in a church meeting i was actually asked one time to use mormon literature in a church meeting i was having in china and i said "Uh, no i think we can do without that or if it's welcoming people into your home as a guest spend the night hospitality and all that you don't want to do that either But these people, these two Mormons weren't coming in as guests in the home or into a home church. They were just coming in here to try to convince me to be a Mormon. I don't think this verse prohibited me from asking them in, so I could try to convince them, to try to encourage them not to be Mormons. So I think we've got to be careful, you know, the context and the cultural background and all. That really does help to interpret Bible verses a lot of times. And notice this welcome. This is not just a mere social propriety welcome welcome meant a token of christian brotherhood it was usual among christian brethren in those days so don't come in welcome brother no they're not your brothers don't do that so in my opinion it's okay if you let a false heretic into your home if you're going to try to refute their heresies job what john is doing here i think is warning about letting false teachers in unopposed letting them have their way Adam Clark puts it this way, quote, he that acts towards him as if he considered him a Christian brother and sound in the faith, puts it in his power to deceive others by thus apparently accrediting his ministry. Well, if you let two Mormons into your house and you got baby Christians there and you proceed to rip into the Mormons and tell them that they are preaching the doctrine of devils, that's not gonna make your brother brethren stumble, so I don't think that's what John's warning about. And also this does not apply to giving charity and shelter to a non believer has nothing to do with that. It has to do with false teaching. Now, when I say this is not talking about giving people food and shelter, there's nothing wrong with doing that. That's perfectly all right. And John was not saying you can't invite someone in to give them food and shelter because they're poor, because they need hospitality. He was arguing against giving them food and shelter, which would then support a wicked work. You help them out, you feed them, they hang around. Next thing you know, they're preaching their garbage. Second John one twelve through thirteen we'll shut it down. Though I have many things to write to you, I don't want to do so with paper and ink. Instead, I hope to be with you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister send you greetings. Though I have many things to write to you, who is that? Who is the you? Of course, we've already argued. Is it a a, a woman or is it a church? Well, wherever the woman or the church was, is unknown, as John Gill says, is probably somewhere near Ephesus, as I mentioned earlier, assuming John ruled from Ephesus. John Gill says John at his old age wouldn't be fit to travel much further than Ephesus. But on the other hand, as I pointed out, John might not have been old as many have made him out to be, especially if you assume a date for John's Gospels before 8070 and second John was written shortly after the Gospel of John. Well, then John wouldn't be so old, would he? So we don't know where this is, but just for the sake of argument, we'll say around Ephesus. He says, I don't want to Write other, other things to you with paper and ink. That's paper is papyrus. Why? Because paper and ink is not personal. It's much more intimate to say things face to face. Much richer communication that way. I hope to be with you and talk face to face so that your joy may be complete. He said the same thing in First 1 John 1, 1.4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here's how it is. You got a certain level of joy in your life. Everything's going fine. But then you've got some Chris, Christian disciples that you're discipling. And they aren't doing so good. Well, now your joy is still not complete. But then they start doing good. They start following Jesus and bang, you're even happier than you were before you started. So we are very much tied to the success of our family and friends and disciples, how well they're doing. That will affect your joy. The children of your elect sister send you greetings again. Is the sister a church or is it a person? If it's a lady, then John apparently the children of that lady are there in Ephesus with him as he's writing. Or if it's the sister is a church, the elect sister is a church, then the children of the elect sister would be, if it's the church of Ephesus in particular, then the children of the elect sister would be the members of the church of Ephesus. Or if it's another church, Then some of those members might have wandered on over to Ephesus to see John. He's saying, the children of your elect sister, that other church of yours that's your sister, these children who've come to see me in Ephesus, they send you greetings. Again, all of that is so speculative. Who cares? Now let's take one last look at sister, the children of your elect sister. Is it sister church or is it a blood sister? Or is it spiritual sisters? Excuse me, spiritual children of the elect sister. Blood children, spiritual children, or is it a sister church? The children of the sister church would be the members of the sister church. John Gill denies it's a sister church. I say it's a strange way to refer to another church, to call them the children of your elect sister. I don't see anybody ever talking about churches that way. Jameson, Fawcett and Brown say that the, the non-mention of the lady herself here seems rather to favor the hypothesis that a church is meant, because John in this verse doesn't mention the woman. He says, the children of your elect sister, but he doesn't mention the lady. I don't know why Jameson Foster and Brown would say that. Sounds like it's a church beyond me. Doesn't make me think that way. Well, with that ambiguity, again, it doesn't matter. We end our discussion of Second John, which is all about truth. And it's all about love. And by the way, many people love to to divorce truth from love. Or they, they tend to put truth and love on the ends of a scale and say, if you, the more truth you got, Scales go down on that end, but then that makes love go the other way. Or, in other words, the more you tell the truth about doctrine, the more you get people upset with you, and the more they don't love you, and they leave. Or the more you talk about love, 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 all the time, you don't talk about doctrine. And so there seems to be a built-in tension between those two things. But John mentions them both and emphasizes them both in this letter. Truth. Watch yourselves so we don't lose what we work for. Many deceivers have gone into the world. Look out for them. And then he talks about love, too. This is love that we walk according to his, his command. You must walk in love. I urge you, dear lady, that we love one another. So truth and love are not a zero-sum game. It's both and, not either or. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished the book of Second John. I hope you enjoyed this audio In my next audio, I am going to cover Third John. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.